1: Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht here with the New Books uh, Network in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And our guest today is Dr. Ethan Pollock, who's uh, written a new, uh, very interesting history of the Russian bathhouse. The book's called uh, Without the Banya, We Would Perish. So thank you for joining us today, Ethan. I hope we don't perish. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Aaron. I hope
0: you do too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, so first off could you start off by giving us a bit of bio on yourself maybe how you came to study Russian history at all or who you uh, who you studied with and uh, you know how
0: all of that ultimately led you to uh, write a book on this particular topic that's a great question I started out in college studying Russian this was in the late 80s and not taking it unfortunately all that seriously and um, not sure that I wanted to go into the field at all found myself kind of bored in my junior year and decided to go to Russia my junior year abroad, which was the spring of 1990, and had a pretty good time in Moscow, but felt uh, overwhelmed by those people that had clearly already made Russia uh, a really the center of their, their sort of undergraduate careers. They could speak much better than I and had a much better sense of what was going on, but I kind of liked just being on the street and playing soccer with folks and and getting a feel for street life in Moscow in the end of the Soviet period. And so when I came back from that, I wasn't sure I was going to go into Russia, Russian stuff or into history for that matter. But then in my senior year of college, I took some courses with a guy named Martin Sherwin, who was a U.S. diplomatic historian, expert on nuclear history. And he got me kind of excited about history and convinced me that since I'd been to Russia before, I should probably go to Russia after I graduate. So after I graduated, I went to Russia and worked, first to just making ends meet by helping him set up things called space bridges and and also working as a teacher first of English in a couple of Moscow universities, but then as a uh, teacher of American history, which is the field I thought I knew best. So I lived in Russia for a couple of years doing that, thinking that it was really not anything all that serious, but a good way for me to spend a couple of years after graduation. And again, what I liked most about Russia was hanging out with people and having deep and long conversations, trying to think about our place in the world and what was going on in the world around us. And some of those conversations, of course, took place around the dinner table with bottles of vodka, but then some of them of course, and inevitably took place in the Banya. And I was kind of impressed by the range of folks that would bring me to the Banya and sort of see it as a way of, of testing out my sort of commitment to Russia in some weird way. I sensed that, but I didn't quite understand it. So some of the people I played soccer with would take me to the Banya or basketball with, but also people I was setting up these space bridges with, academicians, would take me to the Banya. People I was teaching would take me to the banya. People I had met through friends would say, hey, let's go to the banya. So I ended up going in all over Moscow and many of the famous banyas of the city of Moscow, but then also in the countryside, people's dachas in the villages where their parents lived um, and elsewhere. And I was kind of amazed about it. And people would take me, of course, to get clean. They'd say, this is really the only way to get clean. But they also implied that there was sort of a spiritual side to it that this was a place to clean my spirits and rejuvenate myself after the intense life of Moscow in the early 90s. Uh, and then finally, they seemed to think that this was part of a way for me to understand something special about Russia. And so it was cleanliness, it was spiritual cleanliness, and it was Russianness. All of it sort of wrapped up into one, and no matter who took me, uh, they seemed to retreat to one of those three, or sometimes all three of those, reasons for taking me to the ponyo It was not an academic interest at all. It was mostly a thing I did while I was living there. So then I came back to the United States. I ended up starting a PhD in American history at Berkeley. And while at Berkeley, a couple of the Russian historians there, uh, Reginald Zelnick and Yuri Sloskin, sort of convinced me to become a a Russianist instead. And because I'd already lived in Russia and spoke a little bit Russian, I was able to uh, make the leap from U.S. history to Russian history, and then ended up back in Russia, which seemed ideal to me to spend half my life in Moscow, drinking vodka and hanging out with my friends and going to the banya, and half my life in Berkeley, sipping coffee and being outside in the cafes. And, and so this seemed great to me. I was, all, I was all in, and I found a dissertation topic that had nothing to do with some of the reasons I loved Moscow and Russia so much. It had to do with highest politics and history of science and some of the nuclear questions that had originally gotten me interested in history. So I wrote a book on the history of science under Stalin. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I was always slightly dissatisfied that it didn't speak to some of the core aspects of Russian history and the Russian society that I thought were most appealing. So when that book was done, which was in the 2006 or so, the spirit of Russia had changed considerably. And I felt like it was important to write a book that spoke to those aspects of Russia that I found uh, most interesting. And when I was looking around for topics, I realized that this one that had been of interest to me, that I'd studied a little bit, that I'd looked at a little bit, always as a, a side project, suddenly occurred to me that it could be a a project of itself, a real scholarly project. So at that point, I started to look more seriously at doing a history of the Banya. And again, it spoke to the idea of uh, community, of something different about Russia, the failure of many foreigners to fully comprehend uh, Russia. And it seemed to me a nice excuse to talk about Russian history without foregrounding high politics, uh, without foregrounding... Uh, the conclusion that Russia is somehow backwards or barbarian uh, without foregrounding uh, even some of the uh, the sort of intellectual agendas that a lot of people uh, had when they went into studying Russia. So it appealed to me, and I started working on it and started taking it seriously and then found myself eventually writing a book about it.
1: You know, it, it occurs to me here that uh, maybe maybe the first question I I really ought to ask you about the book is uh, for the audience who may or may not be familiar with this. Can you just describe the routine of going to the Banya? Like what do you actually do when you go to one?
0: That's a great question. And I, I don't mean to take, (laughs) I don't mean to assume everyone knows. And in fact, until you've gone, it seems quite, um, quite odd. So, uh, usually the Banya is, is, um, Well, they can exist in the countryside and they can exist in the cities, but let me describe just sort of a basic experience. There's a wood-lined room or hut in which there is an oven with rocks inside, and the rocks are heated to extreme heat till they're red hot. Then usually the flame for heating them is put out, and uh, the room is aired out if smoke is built up. And then because the rocks are so hot, When you close back up the room it gets very hot again you can throw water or other liquid onto the rocks which creates some steam and then people go inside and uh steam themselves you go in naked and you go in with other people and you may whisk one another with birch branches uh sort of slap them down on your backs or your bodies uh and then when the heat becomes unbearable, which it sometimes does because the heat in the bonya can get close to the point of boiling at the very top of the room. Uh, you run outside and either into a pool if you're in an urban banya, yeah, or sometimes if you're in the countryside, you run out into the snow and then you repeat the process. <laughs> and sometimes for hours um, at a time and sometimes after a few times in and out, you might sit and let the steam room air out a little bit. Uh, and drink some tea, and then repeat the process again. You can do this for a couple of hours. And the result at the end of it all is a remarkable feeling of uh, just uh, cleanliness and rejuvenation. And that has been at the heart of the experience for a lot of people for a long time. But because of this ritual, and for Westerners, there's a whole theme in the book about how foreigners have understood this, Um, It seems quite strange. And frankly, to me, the first few times it was strange and it required a lot of my friends sort of talking me through it and helping me through it for me to realize that uh, maybe my own way of getting clean was kind of bizarre. And I have to say, since then, you know, showers and tubs, they sometimes don't seem sufficient to really clean the body the way the banya does. So in that sense, I've become somewhat of a fan.
1: I, I certainly have myself actually I think uh, this coming summer I'm going to build one out at my house. Yeah, that sounds so,
0: great. Yeah, so we'll
1: um, we'll, uh, we'll see if you're ever in Montana, you can uh, come by and we'll hang out in my bun. It would be my pleasure. It would be my pleasure. <laughs> oh, since you since you bring up um, the uh, the the foreign evaluations of, of the Banya and so on. Maybe, maybe now would be a good time to talk a little bit, you know, about that. You know, like you said, that kind of runs, runs through the book really from beginning to end. So I suppose talking about it here is probably as, as good of a place as any, like what a kind of, what's the range of foreign perceptions at different times of, of the Russian uh, Banya?
0: That's a great question. And, and, uh, it goes back to before there were Russians, when even Herodotus talks to some extent about the strange bathing habits of the people of the, in the steppe north of the Black Sea, and describes a ritual that is similar to Abanya. And in fact, archaeologists have gone back and found uh, evidence that suggests that he wasn't that far off. So these things have existed for a long time, and foreigners that have come into contact with it have been commenting on it for a long time. But the history really starts uh, in earnest with the very foundational documents of Russian history with uh, the primary chronicles, which retells a story of the apostle Andrew. Of course, this is the point of view of Kievan monks uh, in the 11th century. It's not... um, it's not Andrew himself <laughs> saying this, but they have him saying that he's been to the land of the Slavs and finds them. Uh, he goes to the Novgorod and finds that people are bathing, uh, much like the ritual I described. They are in, they go into these huts that are heated very uh, to extreme heat, and they lash one another with birch branches. And he finds this sort of a form of torture. And uh, so that, in in some ways, is is one of the first foreigners' accounts. Of course, it's. It's a Kievan monk's version of what a foreigner might think. But it's also, in some ways, I argue in the book, a, a claim about Novgorod and the bathing habits of the people in the north. And it's juxtaposed with with Kiev, uh, where they say is the land of churches and Novgorod is the land of, of banyas. And this begins sort of a second type of theme. It's not just foreigners, but there's the sense that the banya is somehow of, of the people and not imposed uh, from from above. And from that moment on, basically, foreigners have written about the Banya. If they've gone to Russia, they write about the Banya. And this exists until today. I and mean, In some extent, my book is part of a much longer tradition of foreigners writing about, about the Banya. I try to take all that into account in a way that many people in the... Uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century, we're not necessarily doing, but, um, in some ways I am yet another foreigner who has decided that this is a topic, uh, that tells us something about Russia. When they have written about the Banya, traditionally, uh, they've fallen into two camps. One camp has been most dominant and that is the Banya is a sign of Russian backwardness, sign of Russian licentiousness because people would be naked in front of another, one another Men and women were naked in front of one another, uh, and foreigners found this uh, quite uh, appalling. But they also, um, in some ways, beginning in in uh, the eighteenth century, some foreigners began to see the banya as potential medical boon, something that could really heal people. And in order to understand this, you have to understand that many of the Western Europeans visiting. Russia were coming from places, particularly after, say, 1500, where bathhouses in the west of Europe were being shut down. Uh, they were associated too with licentiousness and with the plague and with danger. The idea that one should expose one's one's body to steam or to even to water was considered quite dangerous. So it's not that people didn't bathe at all, but they thought it was uh, something that should be very carefully monitored and controlled and not done. Uh, on a weekly or prophylactic basis. So they'd get to Russia uh, and see that Russians were bathing and they would find this as evidence of Russian backwardness. This began to change uh, in the 18th century. And it begins to change particularly with um, a, a medical doctor, a medical doctor named Antonio Rivera Sanchez, who First, goes to Russia to work for well, his Portuguese doctor that ends up going and traveling through Western Europe, makes his way to England, uh, ends up in uh, the Netherlands, where he's trained as a physician, and then is hired in the court of Anna to uh, be a court doctor. He helps treat the young Catherine uh, the Great, become Catherine the Great, and helps uh, save her life, for which she is very grateful. And then when Elizabeth comes to the throne, he uh, falls out of favor and returns to Paris where he becomes um, uh, a member of the Paris uh, Academy of Sciences and starts to write about the Banya in a serious way. He'd experienced the Banya in Russia. had uh, traveled around with the military. And this was the first foreigner who really outlined um, and defended the Banya as uh, something that was really good for people's health. And This was a radical idea for Western Europe in general, the idea that bathing was good for you, uh, and doubly so because he was taking a Russian bathing tradition. So uh, Sanchez does a couple of things that are really kind of interesting. He reviews all the different ways one might bathe and concludes that the Russian bath is the best way to bathe. The steam in the fashion that I described is the best way to bathe. And then he writes about this. He had been an encyclopedist, actually had written about syphilis in the encyclopedia, um, was friends with the other encyclopedists, and quite influential man of letters and man of science in this era. And he writes a long treatise uh, about the bathhouse and how good it is for you. And it gets the ear of Catherine, who includes it in some of her law codes and suggests that the Banya actually is really, really helpful uh, to Russia. So traditionally in Russia, the peasants and uh, the average people, the narod, as people call them, would would have phrases that suggested the banya was good for you. They'd say things like elixirs are good, but the banya is better. Or steam your bones, and your whole body will be cured. Or, as the title of the book, "Without the banya, we would perish." But Sanchez sort of gives uh, an imprimatur of medical, professional medical backing. To some of these ideas. And for Catherine, this is great. She's worried about uh, the military and health for the economy. She's worried about infant mortality. She's worried about the fact that Russia doesn't have very many doctors or very many apothecaries. And Sanchez seriously says the, the Banya is the great healer. It's the best way to bathe. And Russia has them. And this is why uh, Russia is in such good shape. So this is a foreigner that essentially before any Russian medical doctors to do, defend the banya as as legitimate. In fact, it's really almost 100 years before Russians take up this call and begin to defend the banya for medical reasons. So there's a moment then that begins with Sanchez in the, 17th, the late, late 18th century and continues, uh, but very weakly through the end of the 19th century. But in the end of the 19th century, what happens is Western Europeans come around to bathing more generally as a prophylactic and as a matter of health and hygiene, at which point there's sort of a golden age of the Russian Banya, where foreigners see the Russian Banya as potentially something uh, that should be imported from Russia, rather than being a symbol of backwardness and licentiousness and uncivilized nature. It was a sign of what of something that Russia got right and that Western Europe had gotten wrong. And so... Uh, you'll see at the end of the 19th century, sort of a heyday of the Banya. There are people that are writing in England about the need to introduce the Banya into England to clean the masses of people in, in Germany and in the United States saying pretty much the same thing. Um, and so at that point, the Banya and, and public bathhouses become central to ideas of what one needs in order to create a clean population. And what's interesting about this, this happens right before the Bolsheviks come to power, so when they come to power, they too adopt this sort of medical hygienic notion of why the bathhouse is really important. And so for a moment, I would say from roughly maybe, I don't know, 1850 to 1920 or 1930, the bathhouse is seen in Russia as a variant of bathhouses all over the place and that that are good. Uh, But over the course of the 20th century, they remain quite popular and quite prevalent in the Soviet Union when their prevalence and popularity begins to wane in Western Europe with the advent of indoor plumbing. Uh, So that places that require bathhouses in Western Europe are sort of a sign that they don't have the modern infrastructure of indoor plumbing. And people start to take baths and showers in their homes and see public bathhouses as dirty places. Um, whereas in Russia, they remain central to cleaning up the population. So at that point, again, foreigners once again start to see the bathhouse as something exotic and strange. And, and in fact, when I go to Moscow in 1990, uh, there's a much longer uh, sort of tradition of seeing the bathhouse as strange and othering and, and odd. Now, that said, the tradition that's begun by Sanchez is never dies out either. There are those from the West that continue to be fascinated by the bathhouse as a peculiar and particularly Russian way to get clean, and perhaps one that shouldn't be denigrated but in fact should be emulated by, by the West. So this is a long history, and you see it hardly a, a, a month or two goes by without another Banya article in American newspapers or in British newspapers or about that someone's experienced the Banya and they want to write about it. Almost every correspondent that goes to Russia eventually writes a story about the Banya. And I still think they could fall in one of two camps. One is sort of, oh, those crazy Russians camp uh, where they see people bathing and they think this is one of those odd things that Russians do. Or a camp in which they say, "Wow, I've never quite experienced something like this. Why didn't I know about this? Uh, we too should be uh, bathing along these lines." And those that 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 sort of dichotomy uh, in attitudes about the banya from the West has has very very deep roots. So one of the themes, although by no means the major theme in the book, is to trace that sort of uh, foreign attitude towards uh, towards the banya.
1: I uh, it's been a lot of years, but I, I seem to remember back in graduate school reading. Uh, uh, I think it was W. F. Ryan's book, "The Bathhouse at Midnight." Yes, and and uh, that gets me to wondering. Then, uh, so you know, you've you've talked about the Banya as kind of being this, this symbol of, you know, down to earth, this is what the, the people do. Uh, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit too about kind of the, some of the other symbolic uh, significances that the, the Banya has had, you know, as a place where, you know, in this case, like witchcraft happens or, you mm-hmm. know, other, other kinds of cultural symbolics that seem to come along for the ride at various times and places.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, and Ryan's book is excellent. And I too read that as, as sort of an inspiration and it's, it's at the heart of what I think of as, as, uh, as another theme of the book. So if one of the themes is, is about cleanliness and the Banya as a place to get clean, I would say the other is this idea of a Banya as a spiritual place, a place for rebirth I mean, it's actually a place for birth, uh, where women often in the countryside would give birth in the Banya. But it's also, uh, a place for spiritual rebirth and for sometimes warding off evil and sometimes making deals with the devil. Uh, so it's a, a liminal place, uh, a place sort of outside the rules of normal, uh, everyday, uh, life. One is supposed to take off your, uh, Cross before entering the banya. Uh, you can't hang icons in the banya, and so in a way, the banya is the space beyond uh, that is not fully uh, uh, under the rules of the of of this earth, of the church, or of the political leaders, and a space that in some ways is a space outside or uh, in 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 between. And that, too, goes back uh, very far. If the downside of the, of the, the theme about health is that banyas also are a place where one can get, uh, where there's lots of filth and uh, disease is spread there. And, uh, and so it, it's, it's both a place where one can get healthy, but also where potentially one can get sick. In the theme of, of rebirth and spiritual uh, cleanliness, it's also, I would say, a place where, uh, because the rules are in some ways uh, paused, it's a place where evil can reign, where corruption is possible, uh, where people can uh, be damned as well as saved. Um, so it's in that sense, it's, it's, it's a people's church uh, where you can get purified um, both literally and figuratively, um, but it's also a place where um, the downside of that is exposure to danger and um, transgressions and um, temptation and corruption and the devil. So um, yeah, and, and men, many of those themes, of course, are played up in in Ryan's book, um, although it you know yeah, although less across. Uh, as much a swath of history as I attempt to do. Because I think even in the Soviet period, when the Soviet state attempts to uh, eradicate any meanings of the Banya that aren't associated with cleanliness, they want to build uh, palaces of hygiene uh, without some of the other spiritual associations, which they had very little patience for. uh, You find that those themes are not fully eradicated. In fact, they persist. They persist in the Second World War. They persist during the siege of Leningrad. They persist in people's depictions of the banya in the gulag. They persist in people's uh, critiques of the Soviet system uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. And so even if, as the Soviet state is producing banyas and encouraging people to go to banyas for health, uh, it's clear that the other meanings of the Banya have not disappeared and that people still go to them for, um, for rejuvenation, for rebirth, for renewal, for uh, sex, for temptation, for making pacts with the devil, for corruption, where they can make deals, where the regular rules and laws of society are, seem to be suspended. You
1: know, maybe I'll, uh I, I gotta say your what you were talking about there is a, the banya is a place where you might get sick as as well as where you might get clean uh, i'll kick in my own uh, contribution to the long parade of banya stories i remember the first time i went to one in uh, in petersburg i think it was and uh i'd never been in one you know a big public one before and the yeah. water in the pool was green okay. and and so you know i looked at the water and i thought well, I wonder how long that water's been in there. You know, well, then, of course, later I realized it was because of all the birch leaves that were in there in the yeah. water, you know, turning it green. But, of course, you go there, you know, for the first time as a, you oh. know, callow youth and you think, yeah. I'm not sure I want to jump in that green water. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you thought it was algae or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I thought I thought I was supposed to get clean here, not, uh, you know, catch some, some uh, you know, wild disease, you know. Uh, yeah. So...
0: Uh, since you, uh, oh, it, it, yeah, I mean, I it go is ahead. a place where disease, disease spread. Um, so, you know, I was saying with Sanchez, his idea was that the Banya should, that the way the peasants were doing it wasn't right. The Banya was good, but the peasants weren't doing it right. The doctors should be in charge of how it's done and the state should actually regulate, how they're built, where they're built, how they're uh, organized, how they're cleaned, and all this stuff. And basically, the Russian Empire didn't have the infrastructure to regulate banyas like this. Banyas for them were a place for making money. They taxed the banyas, and banya operators had to pay the state for the right to operate the banya. Uh, But they didn't have the infrastructure in terms of bureaucrats to go inspect and make sure that banyas were being run in a way that would be healthy. And and not only that, Russian doctors were really skeptical because peasants who would go. They would do things like have sex in the banya or there would be bloodletting in the banya, or they'd be sharing basins or sharing soap or sharing towels or rubbing lotions on one another. Sometimes the banyas weren't heated enough. Sometimes there were no circulation or ventilation systems. Um, Sometimes the banya water was dumped in the river above where people were getting their drinking water. Sometimes the banya water was taken from rivers below uh, places where there were uh, essentially, septic fields or places where people are dumping their refuse. Uh, so doctors would say, "Yeah, our, our peasants love the banya, but nothing good comes of this uh, because the banya, in principle, if it's well heated, if it's well maintained, if everything's clean, if people aren't sharing buckets and soap, would be really great for health." The problem is that they're actually not run that way. And one of the things the the medical oversight people run into is that the banya owners and the banshiki—that that is the people that work in the banya, are there basically to try to make a living. And so the very activities that Sanchez and other doctors or medical experts of war, uh, they're the activities that make the most money for the banchik. So if they're cupping a client they can make money if they're having sex with a client they can make money if they're allowing clients to bring prostitutes they can make money if they can um, provide potions and lotions that can make them money Uh, and the banya owners are much more concerned with that than they are with creating palaces of hygiene so uh, they are places that potentially one can get quite ill Uh, One can imagine it's not so good to be in a sort of lukewarm, heated, damp place, sharing water, swimming in the same pool, sharing the same things with sometimes hundreds of other people. Uh, In fact, not surprisingly, in many places during this pandemic, the banyas are shut down because they are really potential vectors for disease. Um, So that, you know, they're, they're both really, really healthy, and potentially uh, protect, or very good at cleaning people. Um, but then on the flip side, uh, they also have the potential for, for incredible um, uh, challenges to health. In fact, I wrote an article in which I tempt, attempted to run transgressions about where there are bathhouses and broader health effects, uh, health outcomes in various regions of the Russian Empire and it was very hard to correlate uh, the two. That is, uh, it wasn't clear that uh, having more bathhouses were particularly healthy. Um, and if anything, it was a suggestion that the more bathhouses there were, if one controlled for everything else, perhaps the less healthy people would be. Um, and in up and through the Soviet period, this, this remains a challenge. How to build enough bathhouses for them to be Uh, able to clean the population, but have them maintained and built well enough that they actually function the way that people uh, hope they will. And what's interesting is to me, if the people aren't actually going to get clean, but they're going to hang out with friends or going to do all sorts of other things, um, then they won't self-regulate and not go to bathhouses. Bathhouse owners, particularly in the imperial period, understand this. They start cutting back on things that they can afford to cut back on, like heating the steam room, um, as long as they can do other things that the clients uh, want them to do, uh, which obviously doesn't add up to a particularly good um, situation. But what's interesting is the Soviets and later don't don't say to heck with this, we're going to do something else to clean the population. They double down on the idea that the is the, the banya is really the only way to get the population clean. The trick is to build them in such a way that they actually work, um, which uh, proves to be a challenge in the Soviet system. You
1: know you've you've uh, uh uh, very much kind of taken off of of what you were talking about there. I was I was kind of taken with your argument. Uh, I actually I wrote this quote down, so I'm just going to read it to you okay. uh, from from the book where he said that the, the Soviet state inadvertently buttressed traditions it had hoped to destroy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was wondering if you could if we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. What it what it immediately made me think of actually was what happened with Soviet nationalities policy where the mm-hmm. You know the nationalities policy, uh, particularly the one that, that uh, Stalin formulated, uh, attempted to stamp out nationalism and thereby ended up creating more of it. Uh, and uh, so, could you, uh, you know, riff on that for a bit? And in, in what ways did the you know Soviet banya policy actually kind of reinforce things that they wanted to get rid of?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain, there's a lot of. I think nationalities policy is one area, but there are a lot of areas in which. Uh, the Soviet state not only failed to achieve its goals, but in some ways created uh, the infrastructure and opportunities for uh, alternative visions to emerge. And I think the bathhouse is a good example of that. So again, as I suggested, when they take over, the Bolsheviks see the bathhouse as absolutely essential for public health. Uh, At one point, Lenin says, either uh, socialism will de- defeat the Laos, or the Laos will defeat socialism. And the one way to rid your body of, of lice is to uh, take a, ba- a bath, take a banya. In the real, uh, a real hot banya will do the trick. And so they begin to build banyas. They make them free for people, and they support the banya infrastructure. and And they think I think the goal is to really make them first and foremost and exclusively about health that is almost like urban factories for cleaning the population like dry cleaners clean uh, clothes that is people go in and in fact they have propaganda posters that suggest this is how it's supposed to work. You go in, take off your clothes, your clothes go get cleaned, you get cleaned, you go out there, some other door, your clothes meet you out the end of the other door, and together you have eradicated the things that will spread disease. And if they could process people like this, that was their goal. In fact, they counted the number of baths that each individual in each town could take in order to try to maximize Uh, this process. Of course, they never had the infrastructure to do it very well. Uh, Even in Moscow in the 1930s, uh, on average, people could bathe only once a month or even less. Uh, And the goal was to have everyone be able to bathe once a week. So there's tremendous pressure under the Soviet system for people to be able to bathe and uh, for the bathhouses to serve a sort of modern hygienic function for the Soviet state, particularly because people don't have running water. In their homes. But what this actually does at the same time is build and reinforce a Banya infrastructure uh, that allows people to go and gather in the bathhouse. uh, And what they actually do there remains beyond uh, the state's control. So it's not surprising in the 1920s under NEP, they concede some control to banya owners. And then places like Sanduni in Moscow end up with prostitution rings because people are going to the bathhouses not to get clean, but to have sex. Lo and behold, the banchiki have more rates of syphilis than other parts of the population because they're involved in sometimes uh, performing the sexual acts and sometimes just overseeing and monitoring them uh, on behalf of their clients. Um, there's trading that goes on in the banya. There are, in some ways, uh, agitation and political conversations going on in the Banya. So they created an infrastructure which, in their mind, was a place for people to get clean, but in fact remained a place for people to gather and, in fact, do their Soviet duty. Going to the bathhouse was something you were supposed to do. In fact, the propaganda posters implored you to go to the bathhouse. But what you actually did there... Uh, was often not in keeping with what the Soviet state had wanted, such that by uh, the 1950s and 60s, when indoor plumbing begins to be more prevalent and you have this infrastructure of bathhouses around the country, particularly in places where they're no longer needed for hygiene, the infrastructure exists, the personnel exists, the Soviet state was not very good at deconstructing institutions that it had um, propagated and built. So the bathhouses persisted and people started to flow to them for all sorts of other reasons, to get away from their families, to get away from uh, their apartments, to meet up with friends, to chat, to make deals, uh, to have sex, to do all sorts of things that the Soviet state really, really didn't want them to be doing. Uh, But at the same time, on the face of it, what people were doing was fulfilling a good Soviet duty, which was to uh, go to the bathhouse and bathe. Um, and so even as they're trying to build a modern bathhouse, the associations of the bathhouse and the meanings of the bathhouse persist. It's funny at the revolution, uh, the sort of philosopher and writer Vasily Rozanov asked a funny question. He said, um, he said, you know, the Soviets, uh, don't really know what they're going to do with rituals? What's going to happen with things like prayer or holidays or the bathhouse, the banya? And what he meant was, is the Soviet state going to build a whole new world in which all the old meanings are eradicated? He wasn't that interested in the healthy bathhouse. He was more interested in the cultural bathhouse. He thought, are they going to eradicate all these meanings and build new ones or is the proletarian meetings that have been associated with these institutions going to grow stronger? And it, he was right that in a way the Soviet state had not quite answered that question of whether the bathhouse or prayers or holidays were they, um, well, especially something like the bathhouse. Was it supposed to, um, the peasant tradition or the working class tradition of going to the bathhouse, was that supposed to become more bourgeois, clean, um And modern, or uh, was the Soviet state now supposed to celebrate the traditions of the proletariat? Um, As he said, Marx hasn't written anything about the Banya. And what he meant was uh, they really hadn't thought hard about how everyday life was going to change uh, in socialism and communism. And through the end of the Soviet state, they really never quite answered that question in full. Um, there was an idea that the bathhouses were supposed to be about cleanliness, but it never disappeared that the idea that one went to the bathhouse for spiritual reasons, to clean oneself um, spiritually as well as physically, or for communal reasons, that is to gather with friends and commiserate, either to escape the, the present or to find one way, one's way back into a pre-Soviet past in the perioca or the steam room. But uh, those, those meetings never, never disappeared.
1: I was I was quite struck really by uh, in particular that, that chapter where you're talking about this kind of front mentality of Soviet policy where we have the yeah. front for this and the front for that and I yeah. I was I was reminded when you were talking about that of this uh, what's probably my favorite line from Doctor Zhivago uh, where he uh, where the author says that uh, you know we materialism had triumphed. And so that meant that the problems of alimentation and fuel supply took the place of food and firewood. (laughs) (laughs) And and, it really is a fantastic line. And it strikes me that something kind of similar happened when Soviet policy tries to turn what had been a long existing institution into it, kind of to to politicize it and turn it into a front when in reality people are just doing their thing they've always done. Does Does that seem about right?
0: Yeah, well, in a way, it's, uh, yes, that does seem about right. Uh, uh, in a way, the Banya front um, is, it's politicized because the Soviet state insists that, that they should have enough Banyas to keep people clean. But it's a, it's treated like a fundamental truth, not um, an ideologically, uh, the one wouldn't distinguish between these kinds of truths, but it's a truth that is also being held in The West as well. That is, uh, workers should be able to get clean. If in a socialist state of all states, they should really be able to get clean. And it's the state's obligation to provide them, provide the workers with an infrastructure for them to get clean. And uh, so they took this obligation quite seriously. But interestingly enough, in the Banya itself, there isn't an overwhelming amount of explicitly uh ideological language um so it's good for socialism to be able to clean the proletariat but it's it's less um explicitly about the party or about stalin and more about uh fundamental scientific truths about disease and about bodily cleanliness and about hygiene that in some ways they were unabashedly borrowing or uh, measuring up against the west so even in the 1930s they're looking at how many baths people in Berlin are able to take, or people in Moscow, uh, New York are able to take, and then comparing that to Moscow and trying to uh, overtake and surpass the West in their ability to clean, uh, clean the population. And they run into all sorts of typical Soviet problems in the process. So they can prioritize bathhouses, and they, in fact, in Central Committee plenums and in Uh, Kaganovich gets involved, Molotov gets involved, Stalin gets involved in trying to implore local leaders to build enough banyas for their population. Uh, But inevitably, local leaders are too concerned about other high-priority items to keep the banyas open. So if there's fuel for the banyas, that often gets diverted to other places. If there is uh, workers that are sent to build banyas, they might be better served building and working on other things. If there are materials to use to build the banyas, those could be diverted to other things as well. And so the banya, while being a priority on one level, was never such a high priority that the state uh, gave it the same symbolic value as, say, the metro system or some high priority item. And so the banyas often paid the price. And so if they had the personnel to build them and they had the infrastructure and materials to build them and they had the fuel to heat them, Uh, that was quite remarkable uh, because more often than not, they didn't have one or the other. Uh, They didn't have hot water or they didn't have any way to heat uh, the oven when they finally built uh, a banya. So they had failures all across the board, even though uh, on the cultural front, being clean was considered integral to being a good Soviet. And in terms of uh, the countryside, it was clear that epidemics were a grave danger to socialism and the population uh, needed to get clean. Uh, so it was an industrial goal that they made an industrial goal, counted and treated like an industrial goal, uh, but were never able to uh, succeed. And what's amazing is in journals like Krakadila. Uh, humor magazine that poked fun at all sorts of things, the banya is a constant uh, point of of humor because they know that they're unable to build enough banyas to meet the needs of the population, and the population knows this. They're waiting long hours to get a bath, and then when they do get in, they, there's often not enough heat or there's not enough water. Uh, Zoshenko has a very funny story in the mid-20s about the failures of, uh, the bathhouse. And so it's, it's also a kind of topic that people were free to criticize. Of course they didn't criticize socialism. It was never the problem of the state writ large. It was always directed at local leaders, local bureaucrats who had seemed to fail to meet their obligation to, uh, to the workers. And this exists uh, you know through to the end of the Soviet era in, in some towns, especially where again where there was no other option. Other other than the Banya to get clean. I
1: uh, I invariably assign that Zoshenko story to, uh, yeah. when I, when I teach uh, Soviet history it, it that one never fails
0: to be a hit. Yeah, yeah, it's a great. I mean, he's he's so clever, and uh, and he he based it on letters he was reading about Banyas, and he thought you, you know it was it's a critique of the system. I mean, he starts off by saying, you know, in America I hear they've got got good banyas. No, so even there, there's this sort of comparative element of yeah. where things are going wrong in the, in the Soviet Union. Very, very funny story.
1: I think my, my favorite line, I think, from the story has always been where they give him his claim ticket for his stuff and he just says, where does a naked man put a ticket what anyway?
0: He... <laughs> <laughs> so somebody came up with a real world solution to that that never took off what they proposed was that when you gave over your clothes, instead of getting a ticket, you would get a, a, a basin with a number on it, and you'd carry oh. that basin around with you throughout your bathing process, and then at the end, you handed the basin back, and they would look at the number on the bottom and give you the appropriate clothes, but that never took off. Uh, so that problem of getting your clothes back was always was persistent. In fact, I also read of a case in, in the 1930s where um, – where, you know, the the banyas, if they didn't, if they lost your clothes or lost your goods, they were deemed responsible. So, um, a, a father and son went into the banya together and then, um, and then the, the son, uh, dressed in both his father's clothes and his own clothes and, and walked out. And then the father went to the banya administration and said, where are my clothes? They've been stolen. You owe me new clothes. And, um, and then they got caught. But, you know, that was a constant effort to try to keep track of one's things while naked. And, uh, and it's a notorious place for theft and for bribery because the bathhouse attendants uh, could selectively look the other way. Should they, should they want to? I I, I, in a Petersburg Banya, this is in the, in the early two thousands had a necklace stolen. I checked my, my important things um, and it wasn't a meaningful necklace. And in fact, it was kind of cheap. Um, but for some reason, someone took a liking to it. And when I was in the banya they, they they stole it. So that that thievery, theft, and danger and potential downside is always there.
1: I got to say, those those kinds of stories about the two guys that cooked up the scheme there is, I don't know, has this odd effect on me of reassuring me that the human race will go on being itself no matter what the circumstances <laughs> are. I mean, you just. You gotta admire that kind of ingenuity in at least a kind of backhanded way.
0: Yeah. No, that's right. They um, they people think things up no matter what. And I guess this is the this is the point about the sort of irony of the fact that the Soviet state built this infrastructure and yet people start to use it and do things with it in ways that the state can never quite fully control. I kinda like that idea. Um, it gives me some hope as well.
1: I, I did want to ask you, as, as you're talking about the, you know, there's kind of a broad story of failures here that kind of mirrors some, some, you know, much broader Soviet failures. That, that got me to wondering about uh, the case of, like, uh, model towns. You know, I'm thinking about something like Magnitogorsk that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Kotkin wrote about right? in uh in Magnetic Mountain. And uh, like, are there any, are there any cases that of like a model towns, for instance, where the the Banya building uh, program kind of as people had it idealized in their minds where that, where that was actually
0: realized? (laughs) No, (laughs) not that I could find. Uh, So like in Magnetagoras, there's classic lines for the Banya and then they're never able to, to satisfy, that's one of the towns where the number of baths per person per week is, is um, they want to, everyone's supposed to bathe once a week, and they often can't bathe but once every two months. Um, it's a desperate situation um, for much of the 30s and even into the 40s and 50s. The war, of course, destroyed much of the infrastructure of much of European Russia, um, making any headway, which was very little that they had made in the 1930s, Uh, essentially disappear. I mean, the ideal town was Moscow, and Moscow was usually presented as the exemplary city uh, of socialism. And even there, uh, the stories were more often than not. For every place like Saint-Dunis that was well-appointed and luxurious, uh, there were stories of dozens of dozens of banyas across the neighborhoods that were grossly insufficient For the state's needs and where people were desperate to get clean waiting hours in line and unable to unable to do it Um, so no I'm pretty confident that there were none even in the 70s when the pressure on the bathhouse system begins to diminish because of indoor plumbing a survey done of the, the state of the bathhouses indicates that not only are there not enough of them but even if And even if all of them were up and running as well as they could be, there would be not enough of them. But something like 40 or 50 percent were not up and running at all or were running, you know, below 50 or 40 percent capacity. So um, it was a desperate problem that nowhere did they seem to solve, not even in Moscow uh, Hmm. were they able to figure this out.
1: You know, something else that occurs to me here is since you bring up the war, uh, you know, the, the... state kind of rediscovers the virtues of nationalism a bit during the, yeah. uh, uh, the second world war there, the bond is figure in any way. in that kind of, uh, that kind of context is, you know, uh, yeah, uh, it's like the, the right, you know, getting back to Russian tradition and, and, and mm-hmm. so on versus the, the, the
0: Germans, is that
1: figuring yes. anywhere where like in war propaganda?
0: Yeah. Well, so, um, The idea of the Banya Banya as being disparaged by the West goes way back, but I would say in the beginning of the 19th century, and I'll get to the war in a second, but in the beginning of the 19th century with um, the Napoleonic Wars, there's the beginning of a sense that what the Westerners denigrate about Russia, Russians themselves should be proud of. And in fact, the people's Banya, the Banya of the Narod, is in fact a a point of pride. And it emerges as a point of pride uh, even during the Napoleonic invasion. And so there's a great walk of Napoleon in the Banya being whipped by Russian soldiers told, you know, you came to Russia and this is the punishment you're going to get. And the Banya is presented as essentially a national institution of great pride. And that continues through the 19th century. rozanov again, to mention him, celebrates the Banya as the equivalent of the Russian constitution. So he says the English have their constitution. We have the Banya. The Banya in some ways is more egalitarian because it's open to everyone. Constitutions only makes uh, citizenship available to men and men that own land. So really the Banya is a much better institution. And not only that, the constitution is something that changes and evolves over time, but the Banya has been consistent, consistent from Kiev and Rus', through Muscovy, through Imperial Russia. And no matter what the Westerners try to do, they're attempting to re associate it with medicine, their attempt to denigrate it, it survives. It survives everything. Um, and that sense of the Banya as the symbol of Russianness also survives the Soviet system. And it, it, it's there in part in the 20s and the 30s, but it really reemerges in the war itself. And one place we see that is. Uh, Alexander Tvardovsky's uh, Tyorkin poem, um, His poem about a soldier in the war that is n- not particularly ideologically infused, but tells the story of this soldier that's going through the war in poetry. And one of his last chapters is, is Tyorkin in the Banya, in which he talks about the banya as this great Russian uh, vessel of Russianness and place where Russian traditions uh, prevail, and and about how important the banya is for soldiers during the war, not just to get clean and prevent the spread of disease, um, but also as a way of celebrating their Russianness. And then once that takes off in the 1950s and 1960s, it remains as this symbol of Russianness. So the village prose writers pick it up, Um, such like Shukshin and others celebrate the banya as this place that is not uh, anti-Soviet by any means. The Soviet state celebrates the Banya, but is a Soviet in a way that also manages to encapsulate uh, a Russian past. Uh, and so it's both Russian and Soviet. And very few things can manage to be both uh, in quite that successful a way. And because it can, the village prose writers write about it as this emblem of Russianness. And I think this is one of the reasons why, at the collapse, and when I first went to the Banya, I sort of thought, oh, it's communal. It's uh, instead of indoor plumbing, this must be a Soviet invention. And I was told very early on, and I discovered very early on, no, this goes way back, of course. Um, but Russians understood that and celebrated it as something that wasn't just Soviet. So when the Soviet Union collapses, uh, the banya remains not because it gets people clean, because now they can go to their showers, but because it's this emblem kind of, of Russianness. In fact, Yeltsin, uh, when he run, when he's out of favor uh, in the late 1980s, 1989, uh, has sort of run afoul of the system. Says that his handlers took him to a regular banya uh, in Moscow, and he said, you know, they took him there because they knew he was sad and they wanted to get him you know, to, to relieve some of his stress. Uh, and he went in there and he sort of says, that's where I changed my worldview. He realized, he said, that he went in as a communist, um, you know, by tradition, by education, by inertia, but not really by conviction. He didn't believe that he was a communist. And so he went in and realized he wasn't really a communist. He emerges out of there as sort of a newly formed Russian patriot. And so we have all the elements there of of the banya. He goes as a place to get clean, but in fact, he's communal with these other people. He's learning from them, and he has a rebirth, and a rebirth that makes total sense in the banya because he wasn't a religious man. He couldn't have gone into the church and had that experience. Instead, he goes into the banya and emerges as a Russian patriot. So this idea of the banya as quintessentially Russian uh, certainly emerges in the war uh, and merges most powerfully in these moments of great patriotism, uh, but has its roots much earlier and doesn't end with the war by, by any means. And it's one of the remains one of the more dominant understandings of the banya, this sort of proud Russian tradition. So this, if if one can think of the cleaning as potentially dangerous, as the spiritual place as per- potentially corrupting. I would say even the, the, the Russian nationalist place sort of downplays this sort of universal egalitarian notion that the Banya is open to everyone and replaces it with this idea that there is a true Banya and that is the real Russian people's Banya. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to try to challenge all of those assumptions about what the Banya really is and to suggest that it's far more interesting to think of it as all of these things Uh, together, as rural and urban, as backwards, right, and progressive, as uh, sort of spiritual and cleanly and scientific, as straight and queer, um, cleaning, defiling, rejuvenating, befouling, universal, quintessentially Russian, all of these things at once. And in the post-Soviet Banya, we get all of those things. And in a way, it's a celebration of of a diversity of of the Russian experience that I see uh, often isn't reflected well enough in our historiography or in outsiders' understanding of Russia. And, and so I don't want to just celebrate one kind of banya. It's really about getting clean or it's really a Russian tradition. Instead, I, I in the book, try to describe a banya that is um, contradictory and open to everyone. So even though the perilka, the experience of steaming, of going into these rooms and Heat in in extreme heat and beating each other with birch branches and running out in the snow has been pretty consistent for a thousand years. The meaning that people associate with doing that has changed and evolved and grown and I think will continue to do so. And and that creates an image of Russia that also is uh, accruing new meaning, changing, evolving, and is open rather than uh, closed and defined. I suppose we
1: could say that the the experience may be similar, but the meaning is kind of essentially
0: contested. Exactly. Even though many people with whom I come into contact with um, insist that the the true meaning is this or the true meaning is that. A number of people that said, no, there's never been any gay sex in the Banya. Uh, I can't count the number of people that told me that. And yet when I go look in the historical record, it's quite obviously there. Uh, the number of people that tell me, "Oh, the banya uh, is really authentically rural, and that's where the real banya exists," uh, have a hard time explaining how it is that in the primary chronicle there's discussion of urban banya's, and that Olga, Princess Olga, invites people into an urban banya in Kiev um, in order to actually kill her enemies. But still, the exact the, the existence of an urban banya goes back just as long as the as the rural one. And so uh, I sort of resist the idea that one can say what is the authentic Banya uh, in the same way that I kind of resist the idea of a clear and easy definition of what is an authentic Russian.
1: Well, it seems to me like maybe we should uh, finish up with this point here that that, uh, actually, if you take uh, not not all of those themes, but certainly quite a few of them uh come up in the irony of fate like the yeah, the idea yeah. of the banya is kind of being liminal as this place of rebirth yeah. uh and, and you know comrade or uh well, it, or, yes. yeah, camaraderie would be a less loaded word yeah and uh and, and so on is that uh you talk about the film just a little bit in the uh in the in the book Is that is that how you read the film is it kind of collects several of those different themes
0: yeah, it definitely does. It's, it's Well, it's the, in a way the quintessential Banya of the 1970s in that uh, it's no longer required for getting clean, but in the film people insist that it's far better than baths or showers and that it's the true Russian way of getting clean and that it's a place for bonding. It's a place for escaping from some of the everyday life and and one emerges out of the Banya reborn and rebirthed rebirth, and in fact changed so fundamentally in that movie that his, his whole fate is altered by the experience, uh, in the bathhouse. I would say though, that at the same time, there was, uh, in the 1970s an articulation of a rural Banya that would have seen that sort of, uh, urban Banya with drinking vodka with friends and, um, and the urbanness of it as sort of antithetical to what other people thought was the authentic banya at the time which was a, a rural banya in which uh, one went with only one's close close friends and uh, weren't in a public and a communal place and that sort of disparaged uh, the traditions of the of the urban banya so the irony of fate is is a, a great example uh, I'd say another one is old new year of the banya that transforms, that cleans, that allows someone to be reborn in order to reenter Soviet society anew with one's life and fate changed. Uh, whereas the rural banya, I see as in a way, speaking to this other theme that we've talked about, which is tradition, uh, consistency. And in those banyas, in the rural banya, one tended to go to escape into a, a past not uh, uh, into a separate present, but into a, a timeless place um, that uh, allowed one to, in some ways, commune uh, with Russians from the beginning. Neither, again, in my take, is the real one or the right one or the authentic one. Uh, and both should be, in some ways, uh, celebrated and and described.
1: Well, I think we should probably sign off there. Th- thanks for... Uh writing such an interesting book. I've, I've very much enjoyed reading that. I've been reflecting on my own trips to various, uh, various Banyas and I expect I'll continue to
0: do so here. Yeah. Well, thank you. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you and, and, uh, and maybe offline, we can also swap some Banya stories. That, 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 that,
1: would, that would be good. I expect we have a few that probably aren't fit for the, uh, the airways.
0: <laughs> that so. may be the case. That may <laughs> be the
1: case. <laughs> you, you have a good day. Thanks for being with us.
0: Okay, thanks, Aaron. Yep, and bye. <laughs>